Hi, and welcome to another episode of Beyond Barriers podcast with your host, Acacia Dietz and Jeff Scoop. Uh, today, our guest is Alan Mawicki, who earned his doctorate from American University studying the origins and proliferation of white supremacy with a focus on theological justifications for neo-Nazism in America. He is currently a research fellow at the American Counterterrorism and Resilience Institute and a history professor at Texas A&M University. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, so, Alan, uh, thanks for joining us. And and uh, was going to ask you if uh, you could explain a little bit of some of the research that you do, and especially in uh, religious extremism. Yeah. Um, so. For pretty much my entire academic career, um, I've been studying um, specifically uh, the Christian identity movement, um, sort of how and why it began, who were the key figures involved, how did they uh, come to be about and where and when did they uh, start to gain a following, how do they continue to influence both, uh, you know, the fringe movements among white supremacy groups, and then further, how their rhetoric is influenced by the mainstream. Um, my research also then broadened out to being more specifically about, or, or more broadly, excuse me, about white supremacy groups, because uh, once you start talking about theological justification uh, for white supremacy, you come to realize that while Christian identity might be one prominent method used for you know, what's uh, commonly referred to as neo-Nazism, that there are so many different subsects of white supremacy and uh, Christianity, or more specifically Protestantism, is a key facet of many of them. So it sort of looks at, I sort of try to look at how and why these these interplay, what sort of messages that they, that they continue to put out uh, and where these messages originated um, and why there's still something that is talked about, albeit, arguably not as much as it should be today. And why is it, do you think, that it's uh, specifically the Protestant uh, brand of, of Christianity rather than, uh, and it, it may sound like an ignorant question, but I think it's one that the, the listeners might be interested in. Why, why not Catholicism or why is the Protestantism uh, greater? Well, if we're talking about, my specialty deals with America, right? I deal with American history. Um, and as far as America goes, Protestantism is the dominant denomination of Christianity. Um, in fact, if we go throughout our history as early back as uh, the antebellum period in, you know, the early 19th century, there were movements called what was called the nativist movement, and the nativist movement was predominantly anti-Catholic, right? Mm. So uh, a movement, uh, or even if we look at the second, the second clan, the second clan, the predominant enemy of the second clan were Catholics. They didn't like the others also, but you know, Hiram Evans, the Grand Wizard or Imperial Dragon or whatever, was quoted saying something along the lines of like, the Roman Catholic Church can never exist in a free America. Like, it, their two are just incompatible. Um, so simply because Catholicism was deemed incompatible with what the people who call themselves the true representation of America, the 100% American, the true American, then it's impossible for them to be Catholic because in their eyes, to be a true American, it was necessary to be a Protestant. Protestantism equates Americanism in a sense. Both are supposed to be about freedom, right? Protestantism is supposed to be about the freedom of how you worship, right? Whereas Americanism is supposed to be the freedom of how you live. So Protestantism equals freedom, Americanism equals freedom, right? 
then Protestantism equals Americanism. That's why um, if we're talking about, you know, right-wing extremist groups uh, in America, white supremacy extremist groups in America, if they are Christian, they are going to be Protestant. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't racism or anti-other racism in other religions. It absolutely is, right? You know, like racism is, um, is omnidirectional, right? Racism moves in every which way. It can be, you know, white anti-black, black, black anti-Asian. It could be, you know, uh, Latino within the Latino community. It could be Jewish anti-Muslim. It could, you know, it could go in all, every directions. But if we're talking about predominantly, if we're talking about America and we're talking about religious-based white anti-other racism, if there is a denomination of Christianity involved, most of the time, I would say, I won't go so far as to say 100% because I don't really believe in absolutes, um, but I would say as close to absolute as possible, they were Protestant. Well, one that's thing that I'd... Uh, historian I'm a question. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's the danger of asking a historian a question because you're never going to get a short answer. <laughs> I, I was going to say one of the things that I had heard in the movement uh, over the years, especially from clan, uh, the clan people, um, is one of the reasons they didn't care for Catholicism was because um, you had to swear an allegiance or, or the, the Pope was a foreign power. So that's how they viewed that. So it was anti-American and that's absolutely in their, in their viewpoint. It was that there's absolutely, there's all sorts of propaganda they put in, they put out, especially during the second clan that the Pope is not simply the head of a church. I mean, look, Vatican city is in fact a country. It is a separate country. If you go, if you if you're in Rome and you walk ten feet into the Vatican, if you go you go you go to an ATM in Rome, you get euros. You go to an ATM in the Vatican, you get Pope money, right? It's a it's a different country, right? Wow. So, the head of the Catholic Church, the Pope, is, is you're right. It's not simply the head of a church. He's the head of a state, and the belief was, and unfortunately still is to this day that if you were a Catholic or if you are a Catholic, that means that if given the opportunity, if somebody, if the president says something or the Pope says something, the belief is that a Catholic is going to side with the, with, uh, the Pope and therefore can never be trusted as an American. It's the same thing that happens, you know, once Israel is created in 1948, right? Jews can no longer be trusted, right? I mean, there's other reasons previously why Jews were never to be trusted, but Jews were never to be trusted because a Jew was never truly an American, right? A Jew was never truly an American. So when Israel becomes a thing in 1948, anytime a Jew was considered, they're like, oh, well, you're picking Israel over, over, uh, over America. When there's a lot of Jews, myself included, who had never even been to Israel. But the perception is that there is this um, incredible tie, this historic tie to Israel in the same way that it was believed that, or it still is believed, that there is this historic tie to um, the Vatican and the Pope, in which case Catholics or Jews could never be seen as loyal Americans. Wow. That's pretty interesting. Like I would have never thought of any any of that before. Like, but the way you laid it out, it, it's it's very interesting. I can see how- I mean, it, It's a dominant perception that. that the other, whatever that other be, is disloyal to America. If you can, if you can, show even uh, the smallest amount of semi-tangible proof that that other, be it Jews, Catholics, Black people, uh, 
Chinese people, Japanese people, Latino, gay, whatever, straight, whatever. You can show any indication that they are potentially disloyal or have some tie to disloyalty. That's all that's needed. That's all that's needed. Because if you can tie it back to that nugget of truth, uh, extremist movements that thrive are the ones that are founded in a little bit of nugget of truth. There's something you can point back to and say, this actually happened. Yep. And if it did, or it can be perceived as something that happened, then all you got to do is build and then that's easy. Right? Like Christian identity, for example, if you accept the premise that Jesus, um, that Jews uh, are literally the children of Satan, which may sound like a fantastic, like crazy premise, but if you accept that one premise, right? Then everything that they say can be made to make true. Everything that they say can be made to make sense, right? It, I mean, that's the scary thing, right? You, I, I've combed through thousands and thousands of pages of Wesley Swift sermons, you know, the chief progenitor of uh, Christian identity. And every time he quotes scripture, he's pretty much on point. I was, I would be reading it. And I'd be like, there's no way, there's no way. And then I would find it and it's there. Is his interpretation the common, the, uh, you know, the broadly accepted interpretation? No, but the words are still there, you know? And the reason why theological movements, I, I would argue are in some ways harder to combat is because you can't prove or disprove faith, right? If somebody says they believe the world was created in seven days and their source is the Bible, you can throw Darwin after Neil deGrasse Tyson or whoever at them and their response is, I believe it. And there's for better or for worse. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing and I'm not saying it's a good thing at all, but you can't disprove faith. It's impossible. That's what makes it faith, right? That's the entire premise of faith, which is wonderful, but obviously can be manipulated. Right. You know, and, and can serve as like a, a gateway drug in a lot of ways where you get somebody. And I, I think it's a really interesting point that you made as well, because when you get somebody in the door with something and that's as a former propagandist and, and coming from our background, I mean, that's that was one of the things it's like if we could get somebody on one thing, whether it was illegal immigration, whether it was religion, whether whatever that grievance was one grievance, if you could get them in the door with one grievance, then we felt like that we could propagandize them and, and, uh, you know, rat, radicalize, you know, we didn't call it that, but that's what it was. It was radicalized. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, how little is actually necessary, you know? Um, and I'm not saying that like everybody, you know, everybody's going to be radicalized. Everyone's going to be turned into extremists, but you know, there are several, you know, like one of the, one of the examples I remember from a presentation I was giving was, uh, Jeff, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Keystone State Skinheads, right? They changed their name to Keystone United a couple years back. And I remember watching a presentation at, at this conference I was, I was presenting at where they changed their name to Keystone United, were talking all about anti-immigration and got hundreds of people to show up at their rally. I think it was, I want to say it was at Pittsburgh. And every, like regular people are, are sh I mean, shouting about immigration having no idea that they're attending a rally of the Keystone State skinheads, you know? And it's, there's so many things that are so volatile, especially in today's world, um, but it's, it's nothing new. You know, these types of, um, you know, I guess trigger points, let's call them, have, have been existent, you know, as far back as, you know, 
at least as far as my research can tell, which really gets cracking in, in the early 20th century. You know, I mean, we're talking about the second clan, the trigger points were uh, race, the trigger points was immigration, the trigger point was safety, you know, uh, integration, um, uh, women's rights, you know, protection of the home and family, which the clan is still about to this day, you know, who wouldn't want to keep uh, America, American family safe? In fact, I, I did this exercise with, with one of my classes. I, I showed them uh, a few things about the creed of, I took it from the creed of the clanswoman, and I didn't tell them what it was, you know, and they all agreed with everything that it said, right? They all agreed with it, you know? Why America should protect its borders. America should be looking out for the family. It changes its meaning entirely when you realize it's the Klan putting it out. You know what they're talking about then, about who they're protecting it from, right. what the family really is. But you know as well as I do that coded language, it's nothing new, right? And the guys who run these movements are really good at it. They're really good at it. It's tactical, absolutely. My co-host uh, is a was a preacher's daughter, and and uh, I'm sure you've got some questions on on religion, uh, perhaps for for Alan, and um, uh, even uh, share a quick story with you. Uh, one of the first times uh, when when we were both still involved in the National Socialist Movement. We had went to, uh, sometimes I would speak at clan functions and, and things like that back when I was involved. And um, she had went along uh, to one of those, uh, Acacia had went along to one of those and said, this sounds like church. And, and you know, I, w I shouldn't tell the story, but uh, go ahead, Acacia. And, and if, if uh, you have some questions for Alon on, on uh, religion or, or anything else, I, I, I know we cut you off. No, it's it's very it was very interesting to me because I didn't really know what to expect going and it, and it and it was it was almost like a racist church service. It was I I was like very confused because growing up I grew up um very close to Baptist and it but not a shred of racism growing up, you know, we're all God's children, we're all created equal. And here I'm going to this and I'm like, wait a minute, like this is the same Bible that I grew up reading, but this is not the way I grew up reading it at all. Right. So it, it, it was, it was very interesting in one way. Um, but it, it was eye opening to see just how people can twist things to one way or another. And that's, and that's, that in is like, Again, it's like the beauty and, and the folly uh, of theology or religion, right? It's interpretive, right? I mean, like an example I give is one of my students is like, look, the thou shalt not kill, right? That's literally etched in stone, right? Well, there have been people who have been thou shalt killing in the name of God for millennia, right? So if that thing is literally written in stone, then even stuff that wasn't written in stone is just as interpretive. Right. You can't like, again, you can't tell somebody that their reading of, of this passage in scripture of love, like, like love thy neighbor. Right. Love thy neighbor could be interpreted to mean love everyone. Love thy neighbor like you love their self. Right. Could be mean to love everyone. 
unless you have a very finite definition of who your neighbor is. If your neighbor only happens to be white people who are of the same denomination as you, then love thy neighbor takes on a drastically different meaning, doesn't it? Exactly. Right? doesn't say anything about anybody else. doesn't say anything about anyone who's different from you. Right? And, and the, the difficulty is, is how do you tell somebody who interprets love thy neighbor as to be just people exactly like me that what they believe is wrong? Because the only thing you can do is tell them, you're interpreting scripture wrong. Here's my interpretation. You should listen to me. Mm. How well is that going to go over? It doesn't. Right? It's not. I mean, that, and it, it's, it becomes a difficult thing, and it ends up having to be both people involved have to be very open, open-minded. And in situations like that, I don't imagine it's true. You know? I mean, again, I don't know what it's like to disassociate from a movement, but I imagine it has to be one hell of a shock to the system. So I imagine it's not something that you just like, you read a pass or someone tells you you're interpreting scripture wrong and you're like, oh. And then, you know, I can't imagine it's that simple, right? So, you know, like that, again, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, to dump all over, I'm not trying to dump on religion at all because I do believe that, you know, it provides us, you know, with hope, with morality, with, you know, all of these amazing positive things, you know, the whole idea of faith is something that is so, you know, I don't know, glorious, you know, it's like to, to have that faith in something it is amazing. But there's also that other side to it. There's also that no. sort of darker side to it where if it is, or if someone chooses to, it can be used to justify, and it has been used to justify some of the worst atrocities in human history. And those things are not then seen as atrocities. They're seen as righteous. They're seen as positive goods. Right. And that's, that's a problem. That's partly, that's, that's what I study. That's what I study. I study the groups of people, particularly in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, who basically pioneered this stuff, who basically made this into something, into a lasting movement that is still around today. You know, I mean, I know, Jeff, you and I talked about, uh, you know, identity ministers, identity church members, you know, I mean, I was at my master's degree. I, you know, sent emails to all sorts of identity churches all over the place to get them to send me stuff. You know, they're still here. I mean, are they as big a movement? Were they ever a giant movement? I don't think so. But it's disturbing when you start hearing things, you know, um, in the mainstream of religion that echo, you know, what identity people would be, you know, okay, we're on board that, you know? Right. One of the things that I remember reading years and years ago, what it was, uh, it was, I believe it was an FBI report, but I, I'm not a hundred percent on that, but I, I'm about 99% on it, that they had said that the most dangerous out of all of the, um, at least the far right extremists was the religious was the Christian identity people and they and people what well why why is that and they said well how can you know when you're fighting someone who believes that they have God on their side that's a dangerous person and this goes the oh, same for is Islamic extremism or any kind of religious extremism uh, oh yeah you know when you have that belief so that makes sense if God is the source of your uh, of your you know your beliefs you know. It's hard. I, I, I can't imagine 
I mean, I, you know, I've been lucky enough to also hear former identity people um, give presentations and it doesn't sound like it was easy to disassociate from that, you know, because your entire worldview, your entire belief is, is gone. Um, but you can see the allure of it, right? It's, it's like the same allure, allure of any religion. Religion provides why, right? Yeah. As human beings, we're always interested in why. Why did this happen? How did this happen? That's what we're interested in. Religion gives you that carte blanche answer, right? It was God's will. And if you have faith, that's enough. That's enough, right. you know? So, I mean, I, I think I would agree with the fact that, you know, I, I don't know if they're the most dangerous in terms of violent, but in terms of most difficult to probably dispel of or get rid of, I mean, yeah, I, I would probably have to agree that it's probably, uh, you know, devout identity uh, believers would probably be among the hardest to, you know, convince that they're on the wrong path. I imagine that would be pretty difficult because There's what evidence, what evidence could you show them? What interaction could you show them? You know, if they have God in their back pocket, what could you show them? You know, that's a and that's question. basically what, what Wesley Swift, you know, is, is all about. You know, there's not, there's nothing that happens between, I mean, this is the dude who is like, I mean, he's sort of lost to history. You know, I mean, when we think of, I mean, you think of, you know, identity, a lot of people go to Butler, you know, Richard Grant Butler and the Aryan Nations. But a lot of people don't also know that Richard Butler, Richard Grant Butler, uh, I think he quit his job at Raytheon to serve under Swift. Like he was Swift's, like he's viewed himself in competition with William Potter Gale as Swift's, no, yeah, William Potter Gale. Yeah. Am I confusing with the American Nazi Party? William Potter Gale. No, I'm right. William Potter Gale. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Um, he's, he saw himself in competition with William Carter Gale over the succession for Wesley Swift's church. Right. He wins. He moves the whole thing to Idaho. Right. And, you know, up until what, 1999, it was in existence. And then there are still churches that call themselves the Jesus Christ Christian Aryan Nations Church. The Church of Jesus Christ Christian was Wesley Swift's church. Jesus Christ Christian sounds innocuous, sounds like it's like, okay, Jesus Christ Christian. But what it really means is Jesus Christ was Christian. What Christian identity does, it removes all of Judaism, all of it, from Christian history, with the exception of its satanic origins and the Garden of Eden, that dual seed line theory, right? There was something, uh, there was uh, an instance, uh, an individual we know actually, and, and uh, since he's public, I think we can say his name, but his name was Kerry Noble, and he was uh, involved with Christian identity and a very good man, a good friend. And, um, you know, we were talking, you were mentioning a little bit about how hard it is to get people, you know, deprogrammed and, and out of Christian identity. And uh, Carrie's story, and actually he was on this podcast for any of the listeners that are hearing it would like to hear more on Carrie uh, Noble's story, um, you know, tune into that. Um, but um, what Carrie had done was walked into a gay church, or a church that was marrying gay people back in the 80s with a, with a um, suitcase loaded with explosives and was 
supposed to leave the suitcase or was going to leave the suitcase there in that church. And that's, it would have probably been, and this was before the Oklahoma city attack. Um, he was involved with the covenant sword arm of the Lord, uh, CSA, uh, and uh, there's another name for it, but the, the guy that ran it was James Ellison, which I'm sure you've come across in your research. Or, I, he was calling himself King James, I think, even for a little while. Um, that individual. So they were affiliated with that. And Carrie walked into this church and was going to place that. And when he sat, when he was sitting in there watching them worship and watching, uh, you know, the service go on, he was it it took him out of that mindset. He says, you know what, these, even though I don't agree with their lifestyle choice, these people worship God the same way my church worships God. I can't do this. This is wrong. And he, he walked out with the suitcase and, di and didn't follow through on that. So, I mean, that could have potentially been just a, a horrific, Awful. Uh, somebody, somebody I should probably put you in touch with for your research as well. Oh, that'd be uh, great. Yeah. No, I'd love to, I'd love to speak with him. Um, I mean, it's, it's an amazingly, um, it's an amazingly, I would say like Herculean task to, um, look, a crisis of faith is difficult for anybody. Um, but if you built your whole way of life around this essential racist religion, right? If you built your entire way of life around it, and then something happens that shocks you to your core, I mean, it's got to be, it's got to be something, it's got to be something significant. I mean, yep. Carrie would have gone to jail the rest of his life. You know, he would have murdered probably, I don't know, at least tens of people. Yep. That's not something I would imagine someone takes lightly, but, um, and he wouldn't have been the first. I mean, uh, there were identity ministers uh, who, uh, you know, after hearing Swift talk, you know, one tried to uh, go to Ole Miss uh, on the day that uh, James Meredith was being integrated. One black man was being integrated into a school and he was found with a huge amount of TNT in his trunk. Luckily, the FBI caught him before he could do the damage, right? Swift himself was, I know he was interviewed by the FBI two or three times, but they never were able to connect him to something because therein again lies the danger of this church because we have freedom of religion in this country. And Swift, if you read his sermons, like I've done, he never actually says, go out and kill Jews, go out and kill blacks, go out and, you know, uh, kill immigrants, go out and kill whatever. He doesn't actually say that. What he does do is convince people that these individuals, particularly Jews, are detrimental, excuse me, to American success. And that if you do this, or if you prevent Jews from existing in America, you're doing God's work. And if that's the case, then these people, right, don't believe they're committing murder. They're not committing murder from their perspective. And that is hellishly dangerous. You know, I think there's some saying that there's nothing more dangerous than someone who believes in what they're doing. There's something like that. I'm totally messing up the quote, yeah. but there's something like that, you know, and if they fully embrace this idea that Jews are literally the uh, Satan's soldiers on earth, what Jewish people do are the will of Satan, that everything that Henry Ford wrote about the Jews and the international Jew from everything that Hitler ripped him off for to anything that, 
you know, with the silver shirts, anything with, you know, the white citizens council, any incarnation of the Klan, you know, uh, the Christian identity movement that, that really gets going in the fifties, you know, to the American Nazi party with George Lincoln Rockwell. That was the name I was forgetting earlier. That was Rockwell's movement, uh, which really takes off mostly after he dies, you know, uh, but all of this stuff, you know, is centered on these premises that you are doing your duty as an American. You are doing your duty as an American. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous, you know? It's very dangerous. Now, how did you, um, and you might've mentioned this before or whatever, but obviously being a historian and theology and all of that, like, what made you decide to look up theology and Christian identity movement and neo-Nazism? It was a show I was working on. As before I went, uh, before I became uh, a historian, I spent about five and a half years working in television production. Mm. And I was working on a show that had to do with prison gangs. And I, one of the gangs, prison gangs we were dealing with, or genre of prison gangs we were dealing with was white supremacy prison gangs. And I got so fascinated at how, from talking to the FBI, to law enforcement, uh, to, you know, anybody who tracked and monitored these, these guys, I got so fascinated that I had found myself spending hours after work just, just talking to them. Because uh, I just wanted to know more about how they went after it. And then I was talking, this is when I was living in New York, uh, or New Jersey, actually, but I was working in Manhattan. And a prison guard in Connecticut said to me, you know what, go back to school, get a master's degree in a research intensive discipline and figure out why this crap still exists. And that's what happened. Less than, less than two months later, I was enrolled at Seton Hall University with the express purpose of studying this stuff to eventually work for the FBI. Um, and then while I was working at, while I was at Seton Hall, I had an amazing uh, mentor and uh, guide named uh, Professor Jim McCartan and I got so fascinated with the study of how this is studied that I ended up going on to American University for my doctorate, still with the intent to work um, worth, worth work for the FBI. And then, um, you know, I got trained and I got cleared um, by the Air Force, was hired as a consultant. But while I was waiting for, you know, anyone who has ever applied for a government job knows it takes a long time. Um, and then all throughout this time, I've been studying it and learning more about it. And I, I ended up achieving my doctorate in 2019. Um, and literally, I, I guess because I have a doctorate now, I can claim to be an expert in studying this stuff. <laughs> Imposter syndrome is real, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I've, I've been essentially knee deep in studying this stuff since 2009. I mean, I have sermon after sermon of, of probably almost everything Wesley Swift has ever written or said. I've got, you know, books that probably aren't very good titles I could show you. You know, I mean, I've just been so fascinated by how and why this stuff still continues to, you know, plague the country. Um, and I've, I've started actually, you know, and this is something that I, you know, I've been working with Jeff on, is starting to work on how we come to characterize white supremacy. And I think um, we do it too broad, broad stroked, right? Because uh, as I know, you've told me, Jeff, you know, someone who, you know, was in the National Socialist Movement, 
isn't the same as someone who is a Christian identist, who is surely not the same as someone who is in the clan, right? Who's surely not somebody who's in like some, you know, American freedom defense initiative kind of thing. They're not the same. We lump them all together as white supremacy movements. And I think that's sort of problematic because if we're truly trying to understand how and why these things exist and with the ultimate goal of, you know, eventually or trying to combat or rehabilitate, um, we need to know that there's a significant difference and then lumping them all together as white supremacists does us as the people who study it actually a disservice because we don't actually, we sort of just blur the lines and that's, that's not the same. You know, as someone who works to rehabilitate someone, you're not going to approach someone who's, you know, been in the Klan for 30 years the same way you're going to approach someone who's the National Socialist Movement, you know? So what I've been working to do is sort of divest white supremacy into, into subheadings that I think are more appropriate, you know? And I think one of the major ones that I deal with is what I would now call, I know I said I study neo-Nazism, but because that's what it's called, that's what everyone knows it as, but I think I would recharacterize it. I mean, again, I'm only talking about America here because that's my specialty. I would characterize it as Americanized Nazism, right? Because um, there's nothing really neo about the movement. There's nothing really new. It really is just, right. whether it's the, the, the religious side, the theological side, or the ideological side, these movements are uniquely American, you know? Um, like, again, Jeffrey and I discussed that people in the National Socialist Movement, the, the Nazis of the 1930s and the 1940s are not the National Socialists in America. Christian identists are not the German Christian movement or the Deutsche Christian of the 1930s. They're not. This is American Nazism, right? Mm -hmm. So, it and then- It doesn't all fit also, into that. It doesn't all fit into one small box, does no. it? And I think, and I think it's how I think it's necessary to understand it for what it is, to truly try to analyze it, you know, and then whether it's to, uh, you know, on my end to explain and explore how and why, or like on your end to help people disassociate, you got to know what you're dealing with. And if we simply lump them all together, we're not going to do that, you know. So I divested into this Americanized Nazism white nationalism, which I would probably associate with like your Klansmen. And I actually came up with, I think, uh, uh, a third term that I know I was struggling with. I think I came up with what, uh, what I was it calling, I was calling it white blindness. These are the I'm not racist, but people. These are the people who I think white blindness, because it's willful blindness. It's willful blindness, but we're talking again about white supremacy. So we're talking about white anti-other, right? So those people who say like, I'm not racist, but you got to admit there's more black people in jail than, than white people, or I'm not racist, but it's only, it's only, you know, Mexican people. I mean, they, most people think Mexico goes from the Southern tip of the United States all the way down to Chile and includes Portugal and Spain. Um, it's only Mexican people who are crossing the border. You know, I'm not racist, but you know, it's only those are the only illegals, you know, I'm not racist, but you know, all, uh, uh, all gay people want to just molest children. I'm not racist. Look, if you say the sentence, I'm not racist, but just stop there because whatever's about to follow is going to be racist. And that comes from this sort of, I would argue the reason why I think characterizing as white blindness might actually work is because it's this willful sort of ignorance, this willful blindness. Like, I don't want to know about this. I have my opinion. I have not even my opinion. I have my facts already laid out. These people do X, Y, and Z. That's it. So it's like a willful ignorance, a willful blindness. 
And once you divest it into those three groups, I think you can start really looking at, okay, so I have this guy who happens to be, you know, uh, he's not a member of any movement. He's just, he has these tendencies to, you know, ascribe to different, you know, posts and whatever that, you know, denigrate whatever the other is. But he's not a member of any of these organizations. So he might not need to dis disassociate. He may just need to be re-educated. That's a different thing. Dis disassociating and education are different things. Curing ignorance is something I'm tasked with as a professor, right? That's not the same thing as what you're doing. So the way you would approach one is not the way you would approach the other. And I know that was a lot, and I probably don't even you think you just asked me how I studied, how I got into this stuff. And no, was, I was going to uh, ask you oh, about, about <laughs> just beat me to the question because it was important. I think that people do hear about that, and you're right. It, it's there's so many there's so many different ways of looking at this stuff, and if you just lump it all into a box or or label it, you're you're not getting at it from the right place. But ideally, you know. In a, future America in, in our, um, hopefully in our lifetimes, prevent is, is, is where it's at. If we can prevent our young people, like the, in, in the schools is where it starts, you know, if we can prevent yeah, them from falling into these extreme movements, that's really where it's And at. that's where education is so important, you know, and we have these, you know, these boogeymen that they're putting out here, you know, like, I mean, I'm in Texas and, you know, they're talking and they're banning this whole stuff about critical race theory. And I gotta tell you, most high school teachers have no idea what critical race theory is. And if they are, if they do, they're not teaching it, right? Critical race theory is something you only ever hear about in grad studies. And it's really just saying, you know, America has had a problem with racism. So we have to deal with it. That's essentially the core of what it's at. So we, we boogeyman these things and they make them like they're such a big thing. And they, the reason why we boogeyman them, boogeyman them, and I'm turning that into a verb for some reason, is for certain politicians to score political points. That's it, you know? And that's, and that's problematic. That's problematic. As long as people are willing to manipulate um, the other, whatever the other may be, just to score political points, this is going to be a problem. This is going to be a problem. And, you know, look, I'll back our colleges. You know, I think our colleges or universities are among the best in the world. But, like, I think of, of last, like, study, like, our high schools are, like, lagging behind the rest of the world by, like, a drastic amount and shouldn't be, you know? And I think a lot of that comes from, and this is another just pet peeve also because, you know, my wife was a high school history teacher uh, who actually lost her job to a football coach. Uh, and when she told me that, I actually laughed because I didn't think that was real, you know, Doesn't but the, the South, you know, um, I mean, I'm not too horribly against it because it was because of that she moved to D.C. and that's where I met her. So I'm, I'm cool because now, you know, I'm cool with it. But, you know, I talk to my students and like most of them have never learned. And I'm not trying to say that, oh, because I'm a historian, my discipline's the most important. I mean, I think we're lagging behind in social science education, period, you know, and I think the reason for that is, is because there's just no emphasis on it. How can being, how can learning history make me money? Speaking as a historian, it can't, <laughs> but it's worth knowing because if, you know, everyone's like, why do we study history? Oh, those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. Well, then we actually have to study it because we do keep repeating it over and over again. 
and uh, if I'm borrowing a tagline from uh, you know a film production I'm helping um, called The Nazi on Wall Street, uh, you know every time history repeats itself, every time history repeats itself, the price goes up, and that's true. Every time it repeats itself, the price goes up. Uh, I don't think that's the most succinct way to put it. The human cost. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're talking any about. cost. It could cost a human cost. It costs us as a society. It just it just costs us as a country more. You know, it puts us as a country. I mean, us, the entire us, not just a certain demographic of us, the entire us. You know, it puts us all back. Is there, um, Alan? Is there any other uh, projects or, or subjects that you want to cover uh, this evening, or that you want to tell us about, or share with the listening audience? Um, you know, my uh, my philosophy is, you know, I mean, if anyone in the audience is interested in, in hearing more about the stuff I study, you know, I'm a big believer in um, the role of a professor being to answer questions to educate, right? So if I can be of any service, if anyone has a question, I, I have no problem sharing, you know, one of my 10,000 emails, um, you know, for someone to send me an email to ask questions. Um, I, cause I do believe that, you know, education is an incredibly important part of this. And while I can't teach people to be open-minded, I can't force open-mindedness at people. What I can do is show you a different perspective. What I can do is show you a different way to approach what you may already think. And then it's, if you want to continue the discussion and it should be a discussion and it will be a discussion on my end, at least, then I'm open to it. I'm open to it. And whatever else I could address for you guys, if there's any other questions you guys have. Have you received any backlash from, uh, choosing to study what you study like have you received any backlash say from family or friends or anybody that just thinks like why in the world would you want to study something like that like i mean i got questions of like huh like what are you doing but usually uh like my family has generally been pretty supportive of, of what i've doing the, the only backlash i tend to get is from um i've gotten backlash from some students you know who think that you know, because I'm Jewish, that this is the only reason I'm that, and I'm like some kind of secret Jewish supremacist. Um, I've had students, you know, write me research papers on why Hitler was right um, as a sort of, you know, fu. But that's not something I take seriously because that's not that's nothing about me. That's about them. Um, as far as backlash, I don't think I can say um, I've ever really encountered any real backlash, uh, questions, sure, critiques, absolutely, and I welcome those. I don't think any academic worth of salt uh, shouldn't expect to be critiqued or questioned because that's the very core of what we do, right? This whole thing that I just laid out about studying white supremacy is me critiquing and questioning previous scholars who have way more experience than I do how they have characterized white supremacy. Right. I'm the new kid on the block. I've only had my, my doctorate for like two years. And like, I'm just an, you know, I'm, I'm the new guy. 
but that doesn't mean that I think my ideas are any less valid. But I mean, I don't know. I'm going to present this paper idea uh, at the end of at the end of the month at the end of October, and I could be flayed alive. You know, but that would be good because then I would know what needs to be done to make the paper better, more comprehensive. Right. You know, criticism isn't uh, an end game; it's a chance to get better. Ooh. That should be a tagline. That's a good one. That, that's, that's a, a great tagline for something. <laughs> that should be a tagline. Man, that's how you know I used to work in television. <laughs> it was good. It was good. That should be a tagline. Let's get that trending. You're welcome. Historians, <laughs> we know things, man. Don't question us. No, I mean, question us. Totally question us all the time. Question us. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. If there's anything else I can answer for you guys or, or for your audience, or, you know, if I can be a resource um, to Beyond Barriers, you know, just as, you know, an expert, you know, I have to get used to just saying an expert. I can't do it yet. An expert um, in the sort of hows and whys, the, the, the academic side of what this, what these movements are about and why they continue to exist and attract people, then by all means, please contact me. And I think that's incredibly important too. One thing we've, we've uh, discussed before too is, is sometimes you have people that have had the lived experience, you know, like us in the former's uh, sector, and then you have people in the academic sector that, that have studied this stuff too. And I think we both have got to be working hand in hand to all of us in society have got to come together and not, not pretend like just one side has all the answers because none of us have all the answers. Oh. Together, and I think we can accomplish so much. I know? think that's, I a hundred percent agree. You know, um, I don't know what it's like to have been in the movement. I don't know what it was like to, to live this, but I can contextualize some of the things that you may have, uh, or you or other formers may have lived and accepted. I could probably, I could maybe provide a context for why that was something that was talked about, you know? Right or why that was something that was popular in America or why that track of like, why maybe in the eighties uh, talking about immigration might uh, would have worked really well, you know, or why in the nineties it became more emphasis on family or, you know, or in the seventies, why it was, uh, why there was a lot of uh, a larger anti-Latino sentiment than anything else, you know, you know, that's the stuff I can provide, you know, a context for. You know, um, or at least try to. And if not, if I can't provide it, you know, I can, I have the resources uh, and the ability to find out the answer to the question or the context who I could find out the answer or an answer, right? I would never go so far as to say I have the answer, but I could provide an answer uh, for the question or a question that you may have or that anyone may have. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us at, at uh, Beyond Barriers uh, this evening and, and for all your help and the work that you're doing out there, uh, Elon. Uh, we can edit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrible at the opening and closing parts. Um, I personally think you should leave that. <laughs> Just, <laughs> you should leave it. You should leave it to start with, don't call me Alan and then finish it with. Yeah, right. Right, right, exactly. <laughs>